Hello everyone and welcome to the final part of this special Media Voices series looking at future-proofing local news, supported by the Google News Initiative. I'm Esther Thorpe, one-third of the Media Voices podcast. Over this series, we've been talking to some of the publishers working to find resilient business models, how they've evolved company culture and practice to do this, and what tools and trends they're working with to prepare for the next decade. The first episode explored the historical context around local news, shifts in the UK and European markets, and what good local news might look like. The second episode looked at which business models will help local news publishers thrive in the coming years. Last episode, we spoke to local news publishers to find out what changes they'd made internally and externally to prepare themselves better for the digital age, as well as what needs to change in terms of training and media culture to support local news in the future. This episode is all about the tools and trends which these publications are using as part of their digital strategies. We'll hear about what internal tools, metrics and data are vital to help reporting, collaboration between teams, as well as a big picture look at some of the challenges and opportunities local news publishers are facing when it comes to technology. We also asked some of our interviewees how they're using AI and how concerned they are about its impact. When it comes to tools and tech, there are a number of different areas of a publishing business this affects. In this episode, we'll look at two primary areas tech is being used, reporting and internal collaboration, as these were two areas our interviewees consistently identified as having impact. Over this series, we've heard from a number of staff at DC Thompson about their digital transformation process. One of the biggest changes they made was becoming more data-driven, but also focusing on metrics for quality, not quantity, as Group Features editor Jane Zava explains. Before we had digital, we had insight teams and focus groups who would sit down with a newspaper in a glass room and you would watch readers tear apart your work and, or complement it, as the case may be. But now you've got these incredible technologies, these dashboards that can give you real-time feedback, which, for me, coming largely from a print background, has been a revolution, just being able to see that in action and see the engagement um, for us on, on features. We're very much uh, focused on the quality read metrics. So, yes, it's great to get thousands of page views, but we are very much focused on that quality read and how long someone's spending on a feature. So even if it doesn't get massive page views, we're very encouraged if it's getting a quality read of 50% and above because we're on, we're on the right track. So that's been really, really helpful and I don't see why that should be particularly different for what's happening in your print products, although your print reader is more captive and has less distractions. But there is, I mean, this idea that no one has a, an attention span anymore, I don't think is really real. I think if you give them very engaging stories from local people that they recognise, um, talking about things that they feel an affinity with, then you're always going to be able to keep that attention. DC Thompson's Head of Audience Development, Emily Hewitt, says that moving past page views is a key metric and seeing the data more holistically is important. There's no one single metric that you should be looking at. So at DC Thompson, we don't talk about page views within the newsroom, but it is something that we're aware of in the audience development team. Um, We want to see how many people are at least trying to access our content. We talk about quality reads. We talk about assisted subscriptions. We obviously look at uh, dwell time and all of that type of thing to create a complete picture. But 
there are certain types of content that bring in certain types of audiences. We know that we need people at all levels of the conversion funnel. We need the reach. We need the page views. We need to bring them in. We need to build habit. We need to build loyalty. Um, and that's what's going to help us to convert them, you know, at the end of that journey. Different types of content do that, of course. And I think helping our journalists to understand that they're kind of on different paths is really key. Obviously, the live team, they're doing the breaking news. It's very popular on social. It's completely different to our obituaries team who are, you know, working at a much slower pace, going into much more detail and just being aware that not each team is expected to do the same things is is really important. But subscribers like the really great quality, the longer reads, the in-depth stuff, but they also want to know the breaking news as well. So it's kind of, I guess, when we went into this, we thought that maybe the crashes, the road closures, that type of thing would drive a particular type of audience, but our subscribers like that too. It's not just audience data which is important to pay attention to. Metadata also plays a vital part in ensuring useful data comes back out. And that's not necessarily a single process, as Emily explains. I have a bit of a reputation, I suppose, talking about our metadata. When we're looking at um, how do we convert subscribers, you know, there's lots of big conversations going on. But for me, the metadata is the, the foundational work that has to be very robust. And that is absolutely key. Understanding categories, locations, topics, formats, word length. It's absolutely crucial and something that actually at DC Thompson I'm looking to review because when our taxonomy, for example, was put in place a couple of years ago when we started our digital transformation, there was a lot of opinion that went into what categories are the most important, how should things be laid out on our websites and within our systems. And now, unfortunately, I'm coming along two years later to say, actually, I want to revise it a little bit and make some tweaks because we're only as good as the data that, that we've got, in my opinion. Cheryl Livingston, Special Projects Editor at DC Thompson, notes that despite all the data they now have available, talking to readers and getting direct feedback is still really valuable for a local news publisher. We kind of use the, the phrase sort of data informed because it's, you know, it's, it's not always black and white there is lots of gray there that you have to kind of talk to and that's why we have multiple kind of sources of that of that kind of audience data so you have the you know the true data of the dashboards but we have a team that are actually that's their speciality is to look at those dashboards um, and then to help people in the newsroom understand that as well but then we have our insight team is very much more the kind of qualitative really speaking directly to that audience as well so you know and they're doing constant user research, reader panels, all these kind of things as well, um, user testing. But then we also have things like, you know, we've brought back Commington. So that puts a little bit of the, the kind of conversation back into the reporter's hands. So they are able to see what the talking points are from their story from readers. Sometimes it is feedback. Sometimes it is a bit of, you know, I didn't like this bit or this bit doesn't make sense or I'd like more on this. So, you know, the, there's lots of different avenues that you can get that information from. But I, I definitely felt from the beginning that the what people thought in their gut and what was always kind of that sort of traditional journalism stories and um, having spent a few years on online and seen that sometimes they don't always kind of transition over to online or then not quite this, the big stories what was the splash in the paper wasn't always the big story online I always thought that was the hardest for people to kind of get their heads around and they probably did to a certain extent you know like know what they were doing they knew what a story was but what an audience I think that comes back to that kind of what they need 
out of, you know, and that's kind of changed as well. It's not just about knowing what's going on in their local area anymore. It's about getting the context. It might be about having something that's useful, that changes their life. Even if it is something as simple as for me, for example, I go onto our site uh, every Sunday to check my son's school menus because <laughs> it's just in a place I know. I know it's going out on social at a certain time. I know it's going in a particular newsletter and it's just easier. It makes my life easier to find that. So I think that's where, yes, it might in the first instance, you know, you might think, oh, that's, a, I've always done that story for years. We've always done it. It used to be on the front page. Why does, why is it not a story anymore? But I think it's also about thinking about, well, it's not necessarily the same audience and what they need anymore as well. It's, it's definitely a, takes some time to kind of get your head around it. Jane says that the audience teams have become indispensable now at DC Thompson in helping the reporters and editorial staff really understand what's going on. We've got our audience teams now who are hugely important. We, we we rely on them constantly to tweak and make sure that we're we're doing more of what's engaging people and less of what's not engaging people, like learning how to stop doing things. It's easier when you've got a data journalist backing you up and saying, this is right, look at the graph here. You know, we all have our hunches and we've all got news sense, but actually having that in black and white allows, gives you the power to make informed decisions. So that technology-wise has been really empowering in terms of helping you make those decisions. We're also able to regularly target audiences with content that we are engaging with so we can tell what they're reading the most of and offer them content that's similar to that, which also helps us in terms of geography. So somebody that's reading stories in the paper might not be interested in what's going on in Fife, but on on a digital platform, you can give them more of, of what's happening in the area. You can target them. So that's technology which is helping us um, be more bespoke in, in what people are, are getting access to. However, a successful digital transformation doesn't just mean everyone gets good audience data. Building in tools and technology to help connection and collaboration also helps, spurred on by the pandemic, of course. For me, technology in terms of teams, I mean, I didn't know teams before lockdown and it's changed everyone's life. I'm across a huge patch now from, you know, from the Highlands right down to where I live near Glasgow. So it's difficult to be in those newsrooms as often as I would like. But having teams now, it's so much easier um, to stay in touch across the newsroom. So that's a huge technology tool that's really helped us as well. I'm still getting my head around Trello. It allows everyone to have a nosy. It used to be this when you would try and keep your stories close to your chest. You didn't perhaps want your editor to know until it was completely ready. But now if you've even if you've got a thought of an idea and you want to action it, you'll you'll create a Trello card, which for an editor, for from my point of view, is hugely comforting because then you can see you might not have the finished goods, but you can see that there's stuff in the pipeline coming down to you and you can get an idea of what that is. So it's actually amazing, like it's been a real eye-opener for me and it's, it's a real help for an editor that's across so many different patches to, to actually see that everyone's working and thinking and, and working on stories that are that are going to come to fruition. It used to be there was quite a big divide between maybe the advertising and the, the subscription team, like you didn't want to be swayed by that sort of thing, but like allowing them to see what you're working on, you don't necessarily have to collude, and, but it's really helpful for them to see what's coming down the line and, and they can start to, to plan accordingly as well and just being able to see you know what maybe the news guys are working on 
and how you might you can feed off that it can give you ideas it's like a big ecosystem and we can all always see inside each other's minds which might seem a bit disconcerting but actually it's just really really helpful I think in terms of like bringing the team together and it's actually you've got a newspaper um, service in the northeast and you've got the Dundee Courier and you've got the Sunday Post I mean really what's been amazing for me because I'm across all of those titles is the idea of being able to share content and if something works really well in Aberdeen then we we can replicate that and and Courier give it obviously a local uh, local slant, but it's kind of like a, a win, an open goal really. If you can see it's working there, you can tell that the idea is good and solid. You might have to find different case studies, but again, that's one of the beauties of being able to collaborate because I do get the titles. We do get together once a week and we look at what stories have been working on the different websites and how we can kind of learn from that and and, and copy it really. That's not to say DC Thompson have completely got the hang of it just yet. Cheryl Livingston notes that they're still trying to find a balancing act between covering things that drive page views and giving readers what they need. I mean, obviously we had a restructure. So this was, we have a lot of different teams that have a lot of different responsibilities. So all of our journalists have specialisms. So from that point of view, in terms of the the content type, um, they, they've all got their own people looking at that and, and looking at their own audiences. I think from a general point of view, it isn't something we've quite cracked. I think it's fair enough to say just because technology still kind of, or we're still probably catching up with some of the technology. So in terms of the homepage, that's still a bit of a, a juggling because it's trying to do an awful lot. We, we cover big patches. So it's trying to do that local thing for everyone and cover the geography. It's trying to cover off all the different, like you say, the different um, types of content. It's trying to kind of give you kind of useful stuff. It's trying to give you kind of the, the top stories. Like it's it's a lot. And I think things like, like newsletter is a massive sort of traffic driver for us and, and a way that we can at least give people some level of personalization and give them what they need you know, and what they want to read without having to kind of the, the onus isn't on them as such to go and find that stuff on our on our sites. One more unexpected benefit better collaboration and data insights have brought to the teams at DC Thompson is transparency. Cheryl explains that the insights team have become ambassadors for audience feedback and are much more central to the newsroom now. We have technology, we use Trello, which is a kind of planning tool. Um, and it's really helped with transparency. You know, everything that we do and work on is on that board. So you can see you know, next days, next weeks, next months, special anniversaries are coming up, everything that's kind of going to be created at some point, whether it's, there's even some there that are still kind of ideas at this point, anyone from any team can go on and have a look. So in that sense, you can see, oh, we could hook up with you guys because we're actually working on something similar. Our subscriptions team kind of say, oh, you're working on that. That's something that we could like build some messaging around to show the value and the, and the difference in what we're offering in terms of our subscriptions. So that's, that's played a big part because that before that was just you're just kind of relying on telling each other stuff and um, so that's that's one thing it's just transparency it's it allows everyone to kind of take ownership of that thing it's it's there for everyone it's not relying on one person you know if anyone was to leave it's not sitting within one person's um sort of inbox or anything like that and I think as well like it's again it's going back to that kind of audience thing of, of we're managing it in the way of of looking at what's what's needed you know our insight team who are predominantly kind of essentially ambassadors for the audience kind of feedback to us and every decision is kind of made 
with we have like mindsets and personas and all these kind of things that have been around for years it's not they were there for print it's not that they're new it's just that they're I feel like they're personally for me in terms of my career they're very much more very central to the to the newsroom so every whenever we're talking about decisions it's does this fit with a mindset of one of our audience people does it one of our audiences and does this you know is this what pain points do they have are we fixing any of them so it's the balance is kind of with it sits with very much the audience as well of you know if we have an idea and we think it doesn't really fit with of with any of the stuff that we know that they want it then almost becomes like a test of well let's test and see if they do want it so what would success look like and if they don't react to it or don't engage with it there's a couple more stages in terms of like we were talking about earlier but maybe changing how we do it whether it's trying a different style of writing putting out to a different type of audience letting it run for a little bit sometimes things don't always take off and it's a bit of an evergreen situation but if it doesn't work then and we're we're getting better at this but the idea is that you then would stop doing it and that's all about kind of prioritization as well Let's zoom out now and take a look at some of the wider challenges and opportunities surrounding tools and technology when it comes to local news. Table Stakes' lead architect, Doug Smith, says that actually, contrary to popular practice, technology consolidation and local news don't sit well together. In the world of industry, not just news media, industry, when corporations grow through merger and acquisition, the strategy behind that typically emphasizes cost reduction. It doesn't necessarily have to only emphasize that. That's not what I'm saying. But it is, it is almost certain to be a key piece of the corporate strategy. That makes sense that by consolidating a number of other companies into one company, HR, finance, technology, some parts of marketing and sales, uh, production, printing, whatever it might be. These can all become what are, are shared resources. And if they're shared resources spread across a greater uh, number of units that are producing revenue, it's a cost standardization and a cost reduction strategy. And it makes sense. It makes sense. Here's the problem. The strategic imperative for local news lies in creating and delivering value to local audiences. It's dependent on value, not cost. Of course, we want the lowest possible costs. Consider, though, technology just for a moment. You know how important a content management system is. If you don't have one, what are you doing? Uh, you have to have a content management system. Well, if you have a company in Europe, let's say that's in 40 different markets, the muscle memory is, is going to be go get one content management system and share it across the markets. That, that There's a lot of problems with that when market number seven and market number 17 need to use their content management system in unique ways to deliver the value to the to the people who live in those areas. That's just, that's just an illustration, okay? It's just an illustration. But it's the same thing, by the way, with respect to HR uh, shared costs or other kinds of shared costs. When you go to shared costs, you're standardizing the costs, but you're also standardizing the value. And what we need is to differentiate the value locally in order to be successful. So the 
corporate model, if you will, I'm not saying it can't work. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that where we've had uh, some of these players in Table Stakes Europe, the participants in the program have succeeded when they've been able to communicate to their corporate colleagues the importance of local value differentiation. And when their corporate colleagues give them some flexibility to do that, they succeed. So there, there are some dynamics here that are about corporate structure and again, about legacy mindsets and, and so forth. French publisher Roy Cachinos Strasbourg's co-founder Pierre France says that it is difficult for local news organisations sometimes to access the technical investments they need to produce journalism sustainably. I think how, how local news have a future, but is independent media at the local level have a future? That's a different story. People uh, need, uh, will require uh, independent, in-depth news that won't change. But the problem is that uh, the amount of money needed to produce that information and also uh, the technical necessities, the technical investments that are needed now to produce these news, even on a, on a digital form, it will be difficult for independent structures to keep coping with these the investments that are necessary. There will be a necessity to build networks of independent news uh, in order to mutualize things like uh, technical investments, uh, administrative costs, uh, etc. Uh, uh, it will be very difficult for independent structures to, to keep sustainable. Social Spider's David Floyd offers a slightly different perspective. Given the wide availability of tools, they found their own tech spend has been quite low and they can do a reasonable amount for the cost. In terms of the current resources available and the current mix of resources available out there, you can do a lot with a very low technology spend. I mean, we now run six local publications and and, four of them uh, at the level of being in the Google News Showcase, you know, publishing minimum number of stories per day, you know, so, so with, with a real strong online offer. And we're not in a situation where we need to spend thousands and thousands of pounds on our digital infrastructure. You, you can do something reasonable at a, at a relatively low cost if you think carefully and plan what you're trying to do and you, you've got someone to focus on doing that for you. So I, I, think, I think that's a real, that's a real positive. We've seen a number of local news startups recently who have done well initially, then rolled out their model to other cities and regions. The Public Interest News Foundation's Jonathan Heward says that the blueprint-style approach is positive, but success depends on more than just streamlined technology. There's something else in the States called Tiny News Collective. They call it the newsroom in a box. They're like, here's your CMS and your CRM and your, your ad tech, and we'll do some of the back office, and here's legal support that you need and here's your hr policies and like if you're up for it we'll give you all of that and you're good to go and i guess that does help because some people who maybe don't quite have the sort of chutzpah maybe they'd be more inclined to get stuck in if there was a bit more of that support but you do still need pretty special human beings you know the combination of editorial journalistic instincts and community engagement 
skills and business sense. That's not a combination that you're going to find wherever you go just by planting that blueprint or, or throwing that sort of newsroom in a box out there. So I think what we feel is like, yes, that is part of it. But actually what we've been focusing on more is trying to support those news entrepreneurs who are already out there so that they don't fall over and overstretch themselves and burn out to make sure that they're supporting each other so they can keep inspiring and motivating each other and sharing experience and developing them as leaders because they they really are leaders. They may be sort of leading small organisations and small communities, but they're doing really groundbreaking work. So I suppose our feeling is like, if we can emphasise more the human side of it and support them as human beings, they'll be around for longer and they can inspire others and you say, like, like I say, you can't legislate for those people, but you can create the conditions in which they're more likely to survive and thrive. We've talked about collaboration a lot over the last two episodes, but it doesn't even have to be exclusively an internal benefit. Jonathan is watching some of the inter-publisher collaborations with interest and thinks these could grow to be more beneficial than cookie-cutter models. It's a different spirit. I think the independent sector in general, because a lot of people have come into it from other walks of life, and they're doing it because they care about the community. They're not in it to make money. There is a very different spirit. Also, they're not really. If you're, if you know, if you're covering a town of thirty thousand people, and there's someone covering the next town ten miles away, it, it, there's no meaningful sense in which you are competitors. You're much more sensible to work as collaborators and partners. I mean, one interesting question is whether any of these collaboratives evolve. You know, is there a scenario where we sort of see the rebirth of the corporates somewhere down the line? That some of these entrepreneurs that I've been speaking about really start taking over lots and lots of outlets in lots and lots of places. To me, that looks unlikely because it's not quite the spirit of what they're doing. The spirit of what they're doing is, like I said to begin with, it's about going deep into a particular place. It's not about going broad and doing a sort of cookie cutter template across lots of places. So I think that's unlikely. It seems to me what we're seeing is a much more sort of federal kind of model where you're going to have sharing where it's appropriate, but something very distinct place by place. It feels like we can't talk about anything in publishing anymore without mentioning AI. Its impact on generalist publications, which were once giants of the digital age, has been unquestionably brutal over the past year. But local news, because it's more reliant on small, niche audiences and community-focused content, has remained more resilient. Benedict Autre, Google's Head of News Partnerships for the UK, Ireland and Northern Europe, says that in order to look at potential impacts and opportunities, it's important to differentiate between the types of AI and automation in use. So, so there's two things, the AI and Gen AI, you're right, to differentiate the two. AI is more optimization of processes based on data. It made me think of the, um, the experiment uh, with the joint venture between PM Media and Earth Media, you know, the, the radar project. And what it was is scraping public data and then spitting out you know different version of a story based on the you know analyzing the data that they were seeing in different communities and to me that's that's very clever that's scaling and leveraging uh, data at scale 
the Nordics, they did something similar with sport coverage as well. And that's, you know, so it's maybe AI can be useful where it's more commoditized information. And then you can do that gathering of the data at scale and then, you know, making sense of this data and useful information for the readers. Um, and then that free up time for the reporters to do what they do best, which is storytelling and more of the investigative piece. There could be also an element of uh, AI combined with digitization. So, for example, court reports. I don't know whether they are digitized, those things, or if you need someone to sit in the court to decipher what has been happening. Do you see what I mean? And then you could just apply an AI model to make sense of what has been uh, said in the court. Benedict sees ways AI could be leveraged successfully by local news organisations, but more to increase ways of delivering content rather than some of the more hyped up examples. I mean, we're very early in the process, but some of the applications of Gen AI could be how you you train the model to spit out a version of an article that you would have written in a different way of telling the story that would then be aimed at a different uh, audience segment. So like the, the typical dummy prompt you could give is, tell this story as if you were speaking to my five years old. Or tell this story for a teenager's who has 10 seconds attention span. But you see what I mean? It's like, how do you then format the story in a way that is appealing to a certain audience segment, for example? So that, that would be a clever way of that Gen AI layer, which is customizing how you tell a story, in a way. But I think we're only at the beginning of how this technology could be leveraged, but it's definitely... I don't think it would ever replace. It's to enhance. So it's just to do the things in uh, in new ways in that would enhance the work that is already being done. I think. From his perspective, social spiders David Floyd sees AI having a fairly limited impact on local news, in the UK at least. AI is, is now fulfilling the sort of position formerly fulfilled by blockchain of. Uh, you know, it's going to absolutely revolutionise everything. Unlike blockchain, you know, I'm more sympathetic to the possibility that it may create really big changes in the wider world. Uh, you know, I, 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 I don't think it's kind of a massively overly hyped in terms of its wider possibilities. But in terms of the local news thing, I, I, I think in, in a way, anything that AI might do doesn't overtake the challenge that, the starting point is how do you create a good product and getting getting really good products and then trying to get local people to, to buy into that. So in, in a sense, AI might allow the corporate groups to, to do things cheaper. They can't really do things much cheaper than, than they're, they're doing them in, in London boroughs currently. How, how can you spend less than zero? In, in that instance, I don't think it's going to have a dramatic impact. Uh, in, in terms of whether it enables us to do more, I mean, that's something that we're definitely keen to investigate. We're at a relatively early stage in terms of looking at that currently. I mean, there's a few, there's a few resources that we use, like the Press Association's radar AI-based 
wire service, which is is really good, and we use that for a couple of our publications. But yeah, at a wider level, we're not not entirely there yet in terms of exploring everything. But you know, my my starting point of that is always to have an open mind. I'm very interested in what the possibilities are, as long as we stick to our core focus of doing high quality journalism and delivering as the best possible local news product with resources available and if technology can you know, new technology can help us to do that then i'm very enthusiastic about it professor dr vibke moving professor of journalism at Teo dormand institute for journalism notes that a good journalist can't be replaced by ai but a good journalist using ai can replace a good journalist if you use um, AI as a journalist in a clever and competent way, it really can get more out of your effort. But it should not be the way that the AI is doing the work. A, a good journalist can be replaced by AI, but a good journalist can be replaced by a good journalist who, who is using AI. Because you, you can you can do a very effective research using uh, proper tools, not to mention all the hours of looking through your archives for looking for a right picture, or let the AI do the dumb thing like weather or like all the daily information about stock exchange. That can do an AI tool as well. So, and maybe at the end, a journalist is like just looking through the stuff. But till now, we have to say till now, AI is only as smart as the data they were trained on. And um, journalists can use this to, to train their, their own AI tools with, with the data and with the information that they trust on and they uh, would use for a proper journalistic um, research project as well. But we know how economic uh, shift can can come in. Um, If AI is doing all the stuff and it's not covered or not evaluated by a human uh, being or in this way a journalist, then it can come to serious problems because Maybe the data are biased. Um, we, we put on only Western information or we, they exclude certain, uh, certain sources of data. And often we don't know on, on which database the, the um, tools are trained on. So I think they, they can be used as very smart tools. And I think they have to uh, because it makes uh, the way easier. But of course, you have to be careful what 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 are you trust on. And I think if you use it, or maybe if if um, a text is produced by an AI, the user has a right to be informed about that. So just to like mention in the subscription or in a in a line, this this um, text is produced uh, by um, an artificial tool. Dr. Vivke's view is that local journalism doesn't need a complete overhaul, but more a reframe of attitudes and purpose. I would say good local journalism in the future is maybe has to fit the same criteria that good local 
news uh, uh, journalism has to fit uh, in the last 10 or 20 years. It has to be done on a professional way. It has to go deeper. It has to put on some effort in getting the research done. And it has to fit the needs of the users. But what, what will change the future from the last uh, uh, years is the additional have to find the way of getting to the users. They, they could, in the last years or decades, they could trust that users come to them. And now they have to find ways of going to the users. And so they have to find these approaches. And I think one possible frame or one possible attitude can be to put more efforts in getting the people informed on a way that they are not frustrated of all the bad things going on in the world, that they show solutions, that they show the, the context of things and not concentrate only on one, uh, yeah, one topic. It's like put the topic or put, put the recent news in a broader content so that people really can understand, not only to be informed so that they can understand what's going on. And with that, our Future Proofing Local News series concludes. A huge thanks to all the guests who gave their time to speak to us and to Peter Houston for coordinating and conducting the interviews. If this series has been your first introduction to Media Voices, then it's been lovely to have you along. Our next regular series is starting next Monday, the 19th of February, with myself, Peter and Chris Sutcliffe doing a short news analysis followed by an interview with an industry leader. Aside from the podcast, we also have a daily newsletter, online community forum, reports and regular analysis published over on our website, voices.media. A final thanks to the Google News Initiative who made this series possible with their support. They work with publishers and journalists to fight misinformation, share resources and build a diverse and innovative news ecosystem. You can find out more about their programmes, tools and resources at newsinitiative.withgoogle.com. We at Media Voices are also very proud to run the Publisher Podcast and Publisher Newsletter Awards and Summits. The awards are open for entries now and we're putting together an unmissable agenda for the summits on June the 12th for any publishers with newsletters, podcasts or both. Find out more over at publisherpodcasts.com. For any feedback or to get involved with Media Voices, feel free to drop me a line on esther at voices.media. But for now, that's all from me. Goodbye. <laughs>